Welcome to the Catapult Ed Next Gen Podcast, a podcast to educate the next generation towards a successful financial future. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, my name is Tony Cat, Director of Catapult Wealth, and today I am joined by Damien Briotta, our senior, fin- uh, senior power planner here, and um, genuine good guy is probably another way I'd talk about Damien. Um, he's new to the team over the last 12 months, and um, but has been in the industry for a very long time. And uh, so, Damien, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Tony. Um, today, we are talking all things... Um, risk and risk profiles and I think it's an interesting topic at the moment because a lot of people growing up for me through the industry we had term deposits that used to earn seven eight nine ten percent um, bonds were earning seven eight nine ten percent um, even more in the in the 80s and 90s and of course as interest rates have fallen and fallen and fallen and trying to get a return out of that defensive part of a portfolio has genuinely got really difficult so to the point now where um, term deposits for those listening out there know that they're getting about 0.5 of a percent off their term deposit and cash rate and um, bond rate 10-year bond rate i think the australian government bond rates at about two percent so for two for ten years, you stick you give your money to the Australian government, and all they'll give you back is two percent a year for the next ten years. And and a lot of people have found this very challenging um, because the a lot of I'll call it conservative people were used to just putting their money in a national bank or Commonwealth Bank term deposit and earning their seven percent, and that was enough for them to put their million dollars away, yep. earn seven percent a year, and make seventy grand basically risk free. Be nice and, and comfortable. <laughs> yeah. and those those days unfortunately are gone at the moment and therefore but what hasn't changed Damien I, sp- I suppose in 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 a nutshell is that the 70 grand that they were earning that was covering their spending their spending hasn't changed their earning has changed now there is a huge gap in that strategy between earning twenty thousand dollars at a two percent return versus earning seventy thousand and covering their expenses and as you and I both know, if you're not earning as much as you're spending, you're going to eat away at your capital pretty quickly. And not that to be is, in the red. Yeah, yeah. you're going to be, you know, chewing away at your million dollars pretty fast. And and then the knock-on effect to that is that people then worry and stress about outliving their money. They think, well, why am I going to run out of money in my superannuation fund? How long is my money going to last for? When will I potentially be on an age pension? So all those questions, the longevity kicks in and and... Um, and what then transpires, well, they start asking themselves questions, which I think that you and I both know we've been through for the last probably two years, three years, is we can't survive on earning 1% or 2%, and but to go and earn 6 or 8% means we've got to take some risk. Yep. And means we've got to go shift back up the risk profile sector. And, in, and the only other, I mean, you know as well as I do, Damo, that to the only three sectors then you can invest in is property, be it residential or commercial, Australian shares, international shares, probably infrastructure I'll throw into that bucket as well. They're your four growth c- categories. and But the trouble with the growth categories is that not everybody loves the share market, not yeah. everybody loves the property market, and we know they can go down as recently, recent times yeah. of, as well as up. Um, and so today's topic is all around where do people sit on the risk profile spectrum and... Can you just explain today, Damo, that there's, when we send out a questionnaire, how do we as financial planners, and I'll, I'll put you on the spot here, 
it's important for us to understand each individual client's risk profile, isn't it? Yes. And and what you know, can you explain a bit about how that's measured, and then what is the output from that questionnaire, and and, and how that helps you as a power planner? Um, so it's been refined over the years. I think it's around say ten questions at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it just asks you various questions, like if the market dipped. 20% tomorrow, would mm. you hold your position? Mm-hmm. Would you pull out the money, put it under your mattress? That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there we get a calculation of, say, from 0 to 30. Mm-hmm. And then that gets matched up against the risk profile, which tells us, you know, uh, 30% of your capital should be in growth assets, mm-hmm. shares, property, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we make our investment decisions from there. From a recommendation point of view. Yeah. Yep. So it provides a, a broad, I'm going to say a broad framework because uh, it is, and it might be, that, and the categories I think off the top of my head are this conservative. Yep. Uh, so moderate, moderate, conservative, yeah. uh, balanced, growth, and then high growth. Right. And so that's, and, and the further you obviously go towards the high growth end, the more you've got to invest in shares and property. Yep. And the flip side right down to conservative and, and moderate, you're more you're invested in defensive assets, as yep. we call them, which is term deposits or bonds or cash. Yeah, cash. Yep. So... And this is where it's, it's probably got interesting in the, the sense that um, clients um, um, yeah, fill the question out, questionnaire out. They might come back conservative, which is great. And But sometimes when in a husband and wife situation, I'll deal with the first probably problem we get first <laughs> is we get a husband and wife to fill a risk profile out. Stereotypically, they can come back different. So you've got a high growth one. Husband might be high growth and wife got might be conservative. Um, from a, even a compliance point of view or an advice point of view, Damien, do you have any, um, how do we, how can we overcome that situation or how, what, through what lenses can we look at that? So I think, um, that's based on that whole year financial planners saying they act more like psychologists. <laughs> so they have to start educating the clients, see yeah. if they can get them to meet halfway, yeah. be that sort of rock to lean on. Yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting because um, typically when I see a difference in risk profiles, it's normally um, the, the difference is uh, explained a lot by just simply education. So normally someone who's been involved with the share market or property market for years and years and years, they've learned more about it. They become more comfortable with it by the nature of you know us as human beings. The person who's never had anything to do with the share market or property market who says, oh, I don't understand that stuff, Tony, you know, it's all too hard for me. They tend to shy away from it and therefore never have invested it, never have done it, stick their money in a bank account and think that's safe. And and therefore probably the psychologist, I'll call it also the educationer in me, says to get them to meet in the middle is often about explanation. Yep. And it's often about teaching um, the person that's maybe um, at one end of the spectrum versus the other a bit about what it is they're doing what are the pros and cons? What could go right? What could go wrong? That sort of conversation is really important because at Catapult Wealth, we've talked a lot about not investing in anything that you don't understand. You know, like, so I, from our point of view, you know, that that's really, really important. And, and in any husband and wife, and, and Damien, you'll appreciate this in a, in a marital situation, I often, and I'm going to be stereotypical, the husbands don't educate or don't explain things very well. And and when they do, that normally causes a massive rift. Yeah. Um, do, have you that. seen that? Yeah, I'll second that. Definitely. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Yeah, I, I'm not great at explaining things to my lovely wife. So um, so that's where, again, us as a financial planner or, you know, as a firm can, can play a role 
in terms of just that educational role. And I see that once they the education starts to improve, I find that their openness to different asset classes improves as well, which is is really important part of this risk profiling. But you're right. I think when you've got a difference is that you, you're trying to meet them halfway potentially. Yep. But you need, from a, from, you know, from a compliance point of view, Damien, don't, we need an agreed risk profile. Yeah, we that's right. We can't just sort of throw it in the wind and say whatever sticks. Yeah. Let's run with that. Yep. <laughs> and we can't just choose the husband's risk profile because it's the wife's yeah, money as well, and money. nor could we just choose the wife's risk profile. Correct. Um, can we, you explain, you know, typically over time, the higher growth area typically associates over the long term with a higher return, um, both income and growth. And at the moment, a more defensive or conservative profile, as we talked about earlier, which means you invest in cash and fixed interest, associates longer term with a lower um, sort of overall a lower return. Overall return. Yep. It's that, that, that concept is really important to understand because that can over, when you're doing your financial modelling and analysis over long term saying, can you retire? The difference in those two numbers can make a big difference to the end game, can't it, in your modelling? Yeah, that's right. You, basically, you can see the capital runs out by life expectancy or there's enough money to go around for generations. So yeah. It's pretty, um, it's pretty biblical. But in, in terms of even if the difference was 5%, but if it was 5%, it, and in 5% in any one given year doesn't sound like a lot, but 5% year on year on year over 30 years. Yeah, compounding. Yeah. It's a huge effect. It is. It is an as- And for people out there listening, that that is, it is a massive effect. But what we do is we talk a lot about, um, you know, trying to get to your goals we're using the least possible risk. And if your goals... Uh, you know, your goal is to make seventy or eighty thousand dollars in retirement per annum. How do we get to that goal so that you've got enough capital to have that income coming out for your life expectancy, as Damien said, or potentially longer? But taking the least possible risk profile that we can take, um, and by that least possible risk fo- profile, we're talking about that whole spectrum of balanced, conservative versus high growth. The trouble we have, what's interesting is, and it causes Damien in some of the meetings I've been in a little bit of grief, is that clients come in and say, well, we want to earn $80,000 a year in retirement. But to get them from here, from now to there, to have enough capital for that to happen, if they answer the, the, the risk profile comes in at conservative, at, you know, so therefore I'm earning potentially in this environment, you know, 2 to 4%. 2 to 4% is not going to get them to that goal it's not going to cut it no. no and you know from the modeling you sit there and go well i can't if you invest this way it doesn't create that outcome um we're left with some interesting conversations then have because their only ne- one of their next options is to one of the options is to increase the risk profile take on more risk or find more money to invest <laughs> that's yeah it's a real well, or, or reduce the amount they're going to need yeah. for retirement spend less money yeah um and and, and I think that that first question is about increasing the risk profile is an interesting one um, because people inherently, they answered the question honestly in the first place. So therefore, from a moral point of view, should we be increasing their risk profile just to achieve their goal? And how comfortable are the clients with that? It's, it's, it is an interesting dilemma. Have you ever come across that or you've seen people in that situation? Yeah, and it is a fine line which you have to be careful to cross because you don't want to obviously lean on people and sort of, uh, put them into one direction they're not comfortable with. Yeah. At the same time, they're trying to achieve a certain outcome and they're you know miles off of doing so with their current situation. They have to 
sort of draw that line in the sand. Mm. Yeah, and and therefore, which leads into often a great conversation with clients around just educating around risk, because risk is different to different people. And I'm sitting here with you, and I'm sure that you personally probably don't have a very different interpretation of what's risky to to you and what's to what's risky to me. And I know that you know, for example, I've I come across a lot of clients that. Um, like my, and my lovely wife is one of them. Oh, debt. You know, I'm not taking on any debt. Never, don't like borrowing and everything like that. Where, and you've probably come across those clients that are very um, risk averse or anti-debt. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum where, right, well, how much debt can I, how much money can I borrow? How, how many rental properties can I own? You know, they, they, they gear up and they really have a crack. Um, but everyone's got a different line in the sand. How do you, if you were trying to explain risk, Damien, to your family or someone in your life, how, how do you explain it through your lens? Um, basically, I just use, you know, real world situations, property mm. and stuff like that. Because mm. my family traditionally loves the old bricks and mortar. They don't believe in anything else but that and hiding money under the mattress. Yeah. So just keep it real, real yeah. world examples. Um, I wouldn't go into, you know, graphs or modelling <laughs> or anything like that because yeah. that would just go straight over their heads. It'd glaze over. Yep. Yep. Um, and and do you and and the reason property is interesting because I think I do find a lot of Australians default to property as a as a concert they they actually see property as conservative because in Australia we've been blessed over decades and decades of property growth and we've we've seen it in the last um, you know the last three years or, or two years with COVID has been they they don't really a lot of people and I would argue ninety eight percent of Australians haven't really seen their property go down in value. And therefore, they, they just assume that, well, property is just a sure bet, in effect. But it's interesting. It doesn't take me too long to find a few people that have lost substantial amounts of money in property through the years, too. And, and it's not just a one-way street. And, um, you know, I, I guess I was... Is, have you come across anyone, Damien, that's lost money in property or has dealt with it badly over your time? Yeah. Yeah, actually, mm. ourselves. I mean, we bought a unit a few years back thinking, you know, it's great income. It's mm. got to go up. You can't miss... And, um, you know, it went backwards. Yeah, there you go. housing became so affordable, people could borrow more money. Mm. So they turned to housing and left the units behind. There so, you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good example. And and so I think that no matter, you know, you, the risk is different to different people. That's the first point I want to make. But property is not just a sure bet is another point I want to make too. And in, in that I've seen a lot of people get their fingers burnt uh, in property over the years. Neither is the share market. I'm not anti-shares or anti-property or pro either. I think it's important that you understand the risks of that particular asset class, which is what you're saying. Uh, and then understand, um, particularly the thing, the next point I want to make is that risk dissipates over time. So if you held an asset for longer, such as a house, and I, I'll never forget when I bought my first house, 2000, year 2000, I just got married and I moved into a, a little old suburb called Thorngate uh, in Adelaide's north. And and I paid $540,000 for this villa uh, and I vomited in my mouth, basically. At the time, I remember my dad saying, oh, that's just, just, you know, you've got rocks in your head, mate. And at the time, I thought exactly the same thing. I, I was physically ill for a couple of days, thought, um, what have I done here? Ten years later, I didn't think the same way. <laughs> so it's interesting how time can change our perception of the risk we're taking at the time. And, and I guess I just want to ask, have you had... You know, I guess what's your experience with timeframes, Damien? If you again, if you're explaining risk to people, how do you explain it through the lens of time? 
Yeah, I mean, you just have to explain that it's all about riding the wave. Um, you know, Vanguard have got those fantastic charts which mm. sort of span for 50 years. Yeah. They've incorporated things like the Great Depression, yep. et cetera. What would happen to your money if you invested $10,000 at this point? And you can just see it. Mm. Yes, it goes up. Yes, it goes down. Yes, it goes sideways. But eventually it all evens out in the wash and you mm. should end up in front. Mm. At times, your friend. Yeah. There's great if for those that are listening and, and want to know more about the time effect on investments is there's there's a lot of data around on any particular given you know f- share fund or and they take a seven year normally can you can take us any seven year time frame and I'm just going to use sort of something like Argo or AFI here any seven year time frame I think ninety nine point three percent of the time you've ended up in front if you've held it for seven years no matter when you bought it. And when you, if you sold it on the seven-year mark, 99.3% of the time you made money. So, But if you sold some of those at the three-year mark or the four-year, you might have been down 30%. Yep. But taking it from p- point to point, it's very unlikely that whether you're in property or shares that you take over a seven-year time frame that you lose any money. You might not make a lot either, but it's, it's that's, that's a really interesting data point that – and, and that Vanguard graph's really interesting, Damien, in that I describe that like the man walking up the hill with the yo-yo. So if you're watching the yo-yo, it drives you completely bonkers. Like it is, and, and you, you know, down, up, down, up, you, you might as well, you, you know, drive you insane. You watch the man, walk, you watch the man walking up the hill, it's a Different little bit story. more calming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, risk is, it's about time frames. It's, it's also, for me, risk is about liquidity. And I want to talk about this for a minute because I think that people um, should have, in a lower risk situation, the ability to liquidate an investment in a normal, in a quick time frame. But property, you can get caught in property, some property, not saying all property, well, you might not be able to sell it for 365 days or I've seen some property stay on the market for two years. That's a risk, isn't it? Like in your view, Damien, that, that, that is a huge risk. Yeah, it's a huge risk and you can't just start chipping away at bricks and putting them on Gumtree. You're stuck <laughs> with that investment. So. Yeah, yep. about a dollar a brick, I think, mate. But I'm <laughs> uh, not sure how the house will look afterwards. But look, So liquidity and your ability to liquidate something needs to be factored into your risk profile um, so that you, you clearly understand, well, um, how do I get out of this? And, and again, another great example I'll give you is out of the GFC, which I'm pretty sure you're in the industry. I don't know whether you were far into the industry back then, David, but uh, yeah, uh, a couple of years. I'm showing my age here now, but um, is that a lot of those unlisted property trusts got frozen during the GFC and some of those funds stayed frozen for years. So that, and for those listening out there, that meant that people just couldn't redeem their investments, they couldn't liquidate them. And, and if you were relying on that for your retirement income, you were cooked. Like Good you trouble. didn't have any money. You sat there and, and you just have effectively locked away. I mean, did you see examples of that in, in, in your time? Um, not directly like that, mm. but I did notice um, one of my stints, we recommended a lot of the charter hall stuff, which yeah. is that property kind of fund. Mm. And they actually have the caveat now to say, you know, we won't release your funds for 10 years. And it was based on all that liquidity and trouble and growth and whatnot. Yeah. So they had the ability not to. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. yeah you had to sign up. And I think that's important, you know, in terms of education. Again, I go back to that, understanding what the investment's about, understanding and what the risks are around it. And so ability to sell an investment is a risk. Um, and, and I think that's, that's it's a really good example. Um, in terms of, um, you know, risk profiles, I, I guess the other thing um, 
is that even with I, I, I describe risk profiles as well within um, so you'll use the Australian share market Damien as an example about 2,400 companies listed on the Australian share market ranging from I don't know whatever the largest one is at the moment let's call it BHP for the sake of the argument today right down to number 2,400 because people say oh well, the Australian share market that's high risk but within the Australian share market there's a spectrum of risk even in that, isn't there? So you yeah. know that the, there are stocks that are very speculative within one end and you know the stocks that, are, as we would call them, blue chip stocks that are not very speculative at the other end. Um, again, does that make sense to you? And have you have you come across that where people just rule off the, rule out the Australian Australian share market because they all just think it's risky? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And again, it goes back to that um, bricks and mortar. Mm. You know, safe as houses, what could go wrong? Yeah, but um, yeah. You have you heard people, I mean, have you ever heard the people come up to you and go, oh, that's like gambling. It's gambling. Yeah, and actually they have made platforms <laughs> for gambling. So, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It, it's very interesting. And again, that's a perception issue. And, um, and, and, and again, that's where the education kicks in. But on, a, on that spectrum of Australian shares, yeah, you can have the blue chip banks, Woolworths, Coles, Meyer type share investments or listed investment companies. But at the other end of the spectrum, you could have XYZ mining that if they don't find oil in the next six months, they might run out of money and their share price is worth zero. That's gambling. Yes. Like, I, I think right. that where you're betting on red or black, effectively, you're betting on an outcome. Your outcome is do they find oil or do they find a cure for cancer or whatever that, that company is trying to do. That, to me, is gambling. But if you're owning a share in Woolworths, yeah, the quality. The quality, quality it's making a profit, it's 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 getting up and doing something every day. For me, that's investment. And I think there is a clear distinction between the two and people need to understand out there within the spectrum of share market, there is high risk and low risk. And same within the property market, as you said before, I would argue there's high, sp- there's high risk property. Something might be a off the shelf or it might be a high de- risk development type situation. Whereas at the other end, you might have a house at Nord, Bluestone Villa in Norwood, and you go, you know what, in a, in a suburbs, uh, thousand square meters, sit back, forget, yeah. yeah, and and that could be a low risk property. Yep. Um, so I think that it's important that within asset classes, you see that there is risk within that asset class as well, and and I use even internationally, you got companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft, or um, you know these sort of companies versus very high high-risk um, companies overseas as well. So, you know, risk is, it's it's different to everybody. And, um, you know, and I, and I guess sometimes I think that the 10 questions, Damien, probably doesn't give it justice. And I'd yeah. be interested you in your opinion. You have to delve deeper. That. Yeah. No, definitely delve deeper. And, yep. and so it involves really a, a conversation and some really good questions about how do we, how do we get into that with the client? How do we um, actually really ascertain whether you're what type of risk you like or don't like. And our job is just to marry up the recommendations with that risk. And and that's where you keep coming, Damo. You know, you're in the background doing the uh, the plan. All the fun stuff, all <laughs> the numbers and the graphs. Yep. Sure. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I guess um Damon, do you have like do you do you think the ten questions do you think the 10 questions actually cuts it as far as, I mean, like, what's your view of those 10 questions that we use? Because that's what ASIC tell us to do. Um, I mean, what's your view of that? They're a good starting point, sort of gauge where people are at. But like mm. you said, you have to have that conversation, drive it further, 
and delve deeper because you don't want to make any rash decisions. Um, you know, if someone is very bull or bearish and you take them in the complete opposite direction, then that's only going to have disastrous effects. So, mm. And I guess the other thing, Damien, have you ever come across people that are, because they don't understand the risk of things as well, end up in really bad spots investing in things they shouldn't be investing in? Yeah, we actually, we had a client... Um, was a real estate agent and he was convinced those profiles were cooked and basically mm. you came out to what we said you wanted to be. Oh, really? Like, yeah, like we decided before the questions and there was all psychology behind it. Yeah, okay. So he sort of went off on a tangent and did things like, you know, your Bitcoins or whatever Yeah. the investment was back then, your pyramid schemes and, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he lost a lot of money. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think that that's probably where I, I guess today it was interesting. There was an article in the back page of the Financial Review yesterday talking about um, how because we've seen um, the reduction in the numbers in the financial planning community because of the various people that have left the industry through um, new education standards and things like that where a lot of people out there are being left unadvised at the moment and, and I'm sure there are people because they can't afford advice or things like that and um, the the real problem at the moment and the data in this article was quite um, dramatic was people are getting scammed. So, and I don't know if anyone, Damien, in your life has been the victim of an investment scam or things like that, but the number of increase now because people are getting, um, un- they're unadvised, they've got no one to turn to in their life is quite dramatic. And I don't know if you've got, had any instances of that in your life, mate. Yeah, I have heard it. The mm. um, the finfluencers that they call them. So yeah. they sort of see the flashy lifestyle on um, you know Instagram with Ferraris and mm. all sorts, um, telling them to get into investments. And they've thought it sounds like a good idea at the time. Let me do it. And of course, it's gone backwards. Yeah, it's yeah. I I know of directly some some people that have lost literally um, hundreds of thousands of dollars that they thought was a genuine investment. There was even, uh, I think there was someone pretending to be involved with Vanguard recently that scammed some people to invest in Vanguard or I'll call it the, the copy of Vanguard. Um, and, and really that's, I guess, probably, you know, the value of finding a good advisor or good people around you that can be that shield for being able to sift out the good from the bad. And being able to understand your risk profile, understand how that applies to the investment world and making sure you stay between the train tracks. So, um, and, and, you know, that's the value of that advice. If you, if you go and get scammed for a hundred grand, uh, you know, it, paying someone for a bit of advice probably puts pales in comparison to sometimes losing sometimes your life savings. So, um, you know, that certainly be careful at the moment. The, it is certainly a very, volatile world around this and 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 it's important that you um you do get help where necessary damien thank you for joining me today about risk profiles thank you tony i've really appreciated having you aboard this is this is damien's first time on the podcast i'm sure we'll get him back again to talk about some other topics so really happy to have him today um thank you for listening today and as always uh if you need anything or have any questions feel free to contact our office thanks very much